Welcome to an Uvula audio presentation of The Shadow Out of Time by H.P. Lovecraft. Your narrator is Jim Campanella. H.P. Lovecraft published this story in the magazine Astounding in 1935. It has been called his single greatest achievement in fiction, citing its amazing scope and sense of cosmic immensitude. The Shadow Out of Time indirectly tells of the great race of the Yith, an extraterrestrial species with the ability to travel through space and time. The Yithians accomplished this by switching bodies with hosts from the intended spatial or temporal destination. The story implies that the effect, when seen from the outside, is similar to spiritual possession. The story is told through the eyes of Nathaniel Wingate Peasley, an American in the early 1900s who is possessed by a Yithian. He fears he is losing his mind when he unaccountably sees strange vistas of other worlds and of the Yithian library city. Of course, while Peasley is experiencing a Yithian existence in Earth's ancient past, the Yithian occupying his body is experiencing a human one in the present day. But that is only the beginning of the tale. And now, a shadow out of time. Chapter 1 After 22 years of nightmare and terror, saved only by a desperate conviction of the mythical source of certain impressions, I am unwilling to vouch for the truth of that which I think I found in Western Australia on the night of 1718, July 1935. There is reason to hope that my experience was wholly or partly an hallucination, for which indeed abundant causes exist. And yet, its realism was so hideous, I sometimes find hope impossible. If the thing did happen, then man must be prepared to accept notions of the cosmos, and of his own place in the seething vortex of time, whose merest mention is paralyzing. He must too be placed on guard against a specific lurking peril which, though it will never engulf the whole race, may impose monstrous and unguessable horrors upon certain venturesome members of it. It is for this latter reason that I urge, with all the force of my being, final abandonment of all the attempts at unearthing those fragments of unknown primordial masonry which my expedition set out to investigate. Assuming that I was sane and awake, my experience on that night was such as has befallen no man before. It was, moreover, a frightful confirmation of all I had sought to dismiss as myth and dream. Merciful, there is no proof, for in my fright I had lost the awesome object which would, if real and brought out of that noxious abyss, have formed irrefutable evidence. When I came upon the horror I was alone, and I have up to now told no one about it. 
I could not stop the others from digging in his direction. But chance and the shifting sands have so far saved them from finding it. Now I must formulate some definite statement, not only for the sake of my own mental balance, but to warn such others as may read it seriously. These pages, much in whose earlier parts will be familiar to those readers of the general and scientific press, are written in the cabin of the ship that is bringing me home. I shall give them to my son, Professor Wingate Peasley of Miskatonic University, the only member of my family who stuck to me after my queer amnesia of long ago, and the man best informed on the inner facts of my case. Of all living persons, he is least likely to ridicule what I shall tell of that fateful night. I did not enlighten him orally before sailing, because I think he had better have the revelation in written form. Reading and rereading at leisure will leave him with a more convincing picture than my confused tongue could ever hope to convey. He can do anything that he thinks best with this account, showing it with suitable comment in any quarters where it will be likely to accomplish good. It is for the sake of such readers as are unfamiliar with the earlier phases of my case that I am prefacing the revelation itself with a fairly ample summary of its background. My name is Nathaniel Wingate Peasley, and those who recall the newspaper tales of a generation back or the letters and articles in psychological journals six or seven years ago will know who and what I am. The press was filled with the details of my strange amnesia in 1908 through 13, and much was made of the traditions of horror, madness, and witchcraft which lurked behind the ancient Massachusetts town then and now forming my place of residence. Yet I would have it known that there is nothing whatever of the mad or the sinister in my heredity and early life. This is a highly important fact in view of the shadow which fell so suddenly upon me from outside sources. It may be that centuries of dark brooding had given to crumbling, whisper-haunted Arkham a peculiar vulnerability as regards such shadows though even this seems doubtful in the light of those other cases which I later came to study. But the chief point is that my own ancestry and background are altogether normal. What came, came from somewhere else, where I even now hesitate to assert in plain words. I am the son of Jonathan and Hannah Wingate Peasley, both of wholesome old Haverhill stock. I was born and reared in Haverhill at the old homestead in Boredom Street near Golden Hill and did not go to Arkham till I entered Miskatonic University as instructor of political economy in 1895. For thirteen years more my life ran smoothly and happily. I married Alice Keezer of Haverhill in 1896 
and my three children, Robert, Wingate, and Hannah, were born in 1898, 1900, and 1903, respectively. In 1898, I became an associate professor, and in 1902, a full professor. At no time had I the least interest in either occultism or abnormal psychology. It was on Thursday, the 14th of May, 1908, that the queer amnesia came. The thing was quite sudden, though later I realized that certain brief, glimmering visions of several hours previous, chaotic visions which disturbed me greatly because they were so unprecedented, must have formed premonitory symptoms. My head was aching, and I had a singular feeling, altogether new to me, that someone else was trying to get possession of my thoughts. My collapse occurred at about 10.20 a.m. while I was conducting a class in Political Economy 6, The History and Present Tendencies of Economics, for juniors and a few sophomores. I began to see strange shapes before my eyes and to feel that I was in a grotesque room other than the classroom. My thoughts and speech wandered from my subject and the students saw that something was gravely amiss. Then I slumped down unconscious in my chair in a stupor from which no one could arouse me, nor did my rightful faculties again look out upon the daylight of our normal world for five years, four months, and thirteen days. It is, of course, from others that I learned what followed. I showed no signs of consciousness for sixteen and a half hours, though removed to my home at 27 Crane Street and given the best of medical attention. At 3 a.m., my eyes opened and I began to speak and my family were thoroughly frightened by the trend of my expression and language. It was clear I had no remembrance of my identity and my past, though for some reason seemed anxious to conceal this lack of knowledge. My eyes glazed strangely at the persons around me, and the flexions of my facial muscles were altogether unfamiliar. Even my speech seemed awkward and foreign. I used my vocal organs clumsily, gropingly, and my diction had a curiously stilted quality, as if I had laboriously learned the English language from books. The pronunciation was barbarously alien, while the idiom seemed to include both scraps of curious archaisms and expressions of a wholly incomprehensible cast. Of the latter, one in particular was very potent even terrifying, recalled by the youngest of the physicians twenty years afterwards, for at that late period such a phrase began to have an actual currency, first in England and then in the United States, and though of much complexity and indisputable newness, it reproduced in every least particular the mystifying words of the strange Arkham patient of 1908. Physical strength returned at once, although I required an odd amount of re-education in the use of my hands, legs, and bodily apparatus in general.
Because of this and other handicaps inherent in the mnemonic lapse, I was, for some time, kept under strict medical care. When I saw that my attempts to conceal the lapse had failed, I admitted it openly and became eager for information of all sorts. Indeed, it seemed to the doctors that I lost interest in my proper personality as soon as I found the case of amnesia accepted as a natural thing. They noticed that my chief efforts were to master certain points in history, science, art, language, and folklore, some of them tremendously abstruse, and some childishly simple, which remained very oddly in many cases outside my consciousness. At the same time, they noticed that I had an inexplicable command of many almost unknown sorts of knowledge, a command which I seemed to wish to hide rather than display. I would inadvertently refer with casual assurance to specific events in dim ages outside of the range of accepted history, passing off such references as a jest when I saw the surprise they created and I had a way of speaking of the future, which two or three times caused actual fright. These uncanny flashes soon ceased to appear, though some observers laid their vanishment more to the certain furtive caution on my part than to any waning of the strange knowledge behind them. Indeed, I seemed anomalously avid to absorb the speech, customs, and perspectives of the age around me, as if I were a studious traveler from a far, foreign land. As soon as permitted, I haunted the college library at all hours, and shortly began to arrange for those odd travels and special courses at American and European universities, which evoked so much comment during the next few years. I did not at any time suffer from a lack of learned contacts, for my case had a mild celebrity among the psychologists of the period. I was lectured upon as a typical example of secondary personality, even though I seemed to puzzle the lecturers now and then with some bizarre symptoms or some queer trace of carefully veiled mockery. Of real friendliness, however, I encountered little. Something in my aspect and speech seemed to excite vague fears and aversions in everyone I met, as if I were being infinitely removed from all that is normal and healthful. This idea of a black hidden horror connected with incalculable gulfs of some sort of distance was oddly widespread and persistent. My own family was no exception. From the moment of my strange waking, my wife had regarded me with extreme horror and loathing, vowing that I was some utter alien usurping the body of her husband. In 1910 she obtained a legal divorce, nor would she ever consent to see me even after my return to normality in 1913. These feelings were shared by my elder son and small daughter, neither of whom 
I have ever seen since. Only my second son, Wingate, seemed able to conquer the terror and repulsion which my change aroused. He indeed felt that I was a stranger, but, though only eight years old, held fast to a faith that my proper self would return. When it did return, he sought me out, and the courts gave me his custody. In succeeding years, he helped me with the studies to which I was driven, and today, at thirty-five, he is a professor of psychology at Miskatonic. But I do not wonder at the horror caused for certainly the mind, voice, and facial expression of the being that awakened on the 15th of May, 1908, were not those of Nathaniel Wingate Peasley. I will not attempt to tell much of my life from 1908 to 1913, since readers may glean the outward essentials, as largely I had to do, from files of old newspapers and scientific journals. I was given charge of my funds and spent them slowly, and on the whole wisely, in travel and in study at various centers of learning. My travels, however, were singular in the extreme, involving long visits to remote and desolate places. In 1909 I spent a month in the Himalayas. In 1911 roused much attention through a camel trip into the unknown deserts of Arabia. What happened on those journeys I have never been able to learn. During the summer of 1912 I chartered a ship and sailed to the Arctic north of Spitsbergen, afterwards showing signs of disappointment. Later in that year I spent weeks alone beyond the limits of previous or subsequent explorations in the vast limestone cavern systems of western Virginia, black labyrinths so complex that no retracing of my steps could even be considered. My sojourns at universities were marked by abnormally rapid assimilation, as if the secondary personality had an intelligence enormously superior to my own. I have also found that my rate of reading and solitary study was phenomenal. I could master every detail of a book merely by glancing over it as fast as I could turn the leaves, while my skill at interpreting complex figures in an instant was veritably awesome. At times there appeared almost ugly reports of my power to influence the thoughts and acts of others though I seem to have taken care to minimize displays of this faculty. Other ugly reports concerned my intimacy with leaders of occultist groups and scholars suspected of connection with nameless bands of abhorrent elder world hierophants. These rumors, though never proved at the time, were doubtless stimulated by the known tenor of some of my reading, for the consultation of rare books at libraries cannot be effectively secreted. There is tangible proof in the form of marginal notes that I went minutely through such things as the Comte de Lorette's Cultes des Goules, Ludwig Prinz de Vermes Misteralis, the 
unaussprechlichen Kulten of von Just, the surviving fragments of the puzzling book of Ibon and the dreaded Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred. Then, too, it is undeniable that a fresh and evil wave of underground cult activity set in about the time of my odd mutation. In the summer of 1913, I began to display signs of ennui and flagging interest, and to hint to various associates that a change might soon be expected in me. I spoke of returning memories of my earlier life, though most auditors judged me insincere, since all the recollections I gave were casual, and such as might have been learned from my old private papers. About the middle of August, I returned to Arkham and reopened my long-closed house in Crane Street. Here I installed a mechanism of the most curious aspect. Constructed piecemeal by different makers of scientific apparatus in Europe and America, and guarded carefully from the sight of any one intelligent enough to analyze it. Those who did see it, a workman, a servant, and the new housekeeper, say it was a queer mixture of rods and wheels and mirrors, though only about two feet tall and one foot wide and one foot thick. The central mirror was circular and convex, all this is borne out by such makers of parts as can be located. On the evening of Friday the 26th of September, I dismissed the housekeeper and the maid until noon of the next day. Lights burned in the house till late, and a lean, dark, curiously foreign-looking man called in an automobile. It was at about 1 a.m. that the lights were last seen, at 2.15 a.m. a policeman observed the place in darkness, but the stranger's motor still at the curb. By 4 o'clock the motor was certainly gone. It was 6 o'clock that a hesitant, foreign voice on the telephone asked Dr. Wilson to call at my house and bring me out of a peculiar faint. This call, a long-distance one, was later traced to a public booth in the North Station in Boston, but no sign of the lean foreigner was ever unearthed. When the doctor reached my house, he found me unconscious in the sitting room, in an easy chair with a table drawn up before me. On the polished top were scratches showing where some heavy object had rested. The queer machine was gone, nor was anything afterwards heard of it. Undoubtedly, the dark, lean foreigner had taken it away. In the library grate were abundant ashes, evidently left from the burning of every remaining scrap of paper on which I had written since the advent of the amnesia. Dr. Wilson found my breathing very peculiar, but after a hypodermic injection it became more regular. At 11.15 a.m., 27 of September, I stirred vigorously, and my hitherto mask-like face began to show signs of expression. Dr. Wilson remarked that the expression was not that of my secondary personality, but seemed much like that of my normal self. About 11.30, I muttered some very curious syllables. 
syllables which seemed unrelated to any human speech. I appeared, too, to struggle against something. Then, just after noon, the housekeeper and maid having meanwhile returned, I began to mutter in English. Of the orthodox economists of that period, Jevons typifies the prevailing trend towards scientific correlation. His attempt to link the commercial cycle of prosperity and depression with the physical cycle of the solar spots forms perhaps the apex of Nathaniel Wingate Peasley had come back, a spirit in whose time scale it was still Thursday morning, 1908, with the economics class gazing up at the battered desk on the platform. Chapter 2 My reabsorption into normal life was a painful and difficult process. The loss of over five years creates more complications than can be imagined, and in my case there were countless matters to be adjusted. What I heard of my actions since 1908 astonished and disturbed me, but I tried to view the matter as philosophically as I could. At last, regaining custody of my second son, Wingate, I settled down with him in the Crane Street house and endeavored to resume my teaching, my old professorship having been kindly offered me back by the college. I began work with the February 1914 term and kept at it just a year. By that time, I realized how badly my experience had shaken me. Though perfectly sane... I hoped, and with no flaw in my original personality, I had not the nervous energy of the old days. Vague dreams and queer ideas continually haunted me, and when the outbreak of the World War turned my mind to history, I found myself thinking of periods and events in the oddest possible fashion. My conception of time, my ability to distinguish between consecutiveness and simultaneousness seemed subtly disordered so that I found chimerical notions about living in one age and casting one's mind all over eternity for knowledge of past and future ages. The war gave me strange impressions of remembering some of its far-off consequences as if I knew how it was coming out and could look back upon it in the light of future information. All such quasi-memories were attended with much pain and with a feeling that some artificial psychological barrier was set against them. When I diffidently hinted to others about my impressions, I met with varied responses. Some people looked uncomfortably at me, but men in the mathematics department spoke of new developments in those theories of relativity, then discussed only in learned circles which were later to become so famous. Dr. Albert Einstein, they said, was rapidly reducing time to the status of a mere dimension. But the dreams and disturbed feelings gained on me so that I had to drop my regular work in 1915. Certainly the impressions were taking on annoying shape and giving me the persistent notion that my amnesia had formed some unholy sort of exchange that the secondary personality had indeed suffered displacement and been in possession of my body. Thus I was driven to vague 
and frightful speculations concerning the whereabouts of my true self during the years that another had held my body, the curious knowledge and strange conduct of my body's late tenant troubled me more and more as I learned further details from people, papers, and magazines. Queernesses that had baffled others seemed to harmonize terribly with some background of black knowledge which festered in the chasms of my subconscious. I began to search feverishly for every scrap of information bearing on the studies and travels of that other one during the dark years. Not all of my troubles were as semi-abstract as this. There were the dreams, and these seemed to grow in vividness and concreteness. Knowing how most would regard them, I seldom mentioned them to anyone but my son or certain trusted psychologists. But eventually I commenced a scientific study of other cases in order to see how typical or atypical such visions might be among amnesia victims. My results, aided by psychologists, historians, anthropologists, and mental specialists of wide experience, and by a study that included all records of split personalities from the days of demonic possession legends to the medically realistic present, at first bothered me more than they consoled me. I soon found that my dreams had indeed no counterpart in the overwhelming bulk of true amnesia cases. There remained, however, a tiny residue of accounts which for years baffled and shocked me with their parallelism to my own experience. Some of them were bits of ancient folklore, others were case histories in the annals of medicine, one or two were anecdotes obscurely buried in standard histories. It thus appeared that while my special kind of affliction was prodigiously rare, instances of it had occurred at long intervals ever since the beginning of man's annals. Some centuries might contain one, two, or three cases, others none, or at least none whose record survived. The essence was always the same. A person of keen thoughtfulness seized a strange secondary life, and leading for a greater or lesser period an utterly alien existence, typified at first by vocal and bodily awkwardness, and later by a wholesale acquisition of scientific, historic, artistic, and anthropologic knowledge, an acquisition carried on with feverish zest and with a wholly abnormal absorptive power, then a sudden return of rightful consciousness, intermittently plagued ever after with vague, unplaceable dreams suggesting fragments of some hideous memory elaborately blotted out. And the close resemblance of those nightmares to my own, even in some of the smallest particulars, left no doubt in my mind of their significantly typical nature. One or two of the cases had an added ring of faint, blasphemous familiarity, as if I had heard of them before, through some cosmic channel too morbid and frightful to contemplate. In three instances there was specific mention of such an unknown machine 
as had been in my house before the second change. Another thing that worried me during my investigation was the somewhat greater frequency of cases where a brief elusive glimpse of the typical nightmares was afforded to persons not visited with well-defined amnesia. These persons were largely of mediocre mind or less, some so primitive that they could scarcely be thought of as vehicles for abnormal scholarship and preternatural mental acquisitions. For a second they would be fired with alien force, then a backwards lapse and a thin, swift-fading memory of unhuman horrors. There had been at least three such cases during the past half-century, one only fifteen years before. Had something been groping blindly through time from some unsuspected abyss in nature? Were these faint cases, monstrous, sinister experiments of a kind and authorship utterly beyond sane belief? Such were a few of the formless speculations of my weaker hours, fancies abetted by myths which my studies uncovered, for I could not doubt that certain persistent legends of immemorial antiquity, apparently unknown to the victims and the physicians connected with recent amnesia cases, formed a striking and awesome elaboration of memory lapses such as mine. Of the nature of the dreams and impressions which were growing so clamorous, I still almost fear to speak. They seemed to savor of madness, and at times I believed I was indeed going mad. Was there a special type of delusion afflicting those who had suffered lapses of memory? Conceivably, the efforts of the subconscious mind to fill up a perplexing blank with pseudo-memories might give rise to strange imaginative vagaries. This indeed, though an alternative folklore theory, finally seemed to me more plausible, was the belief of many of the alienists who helped me in search for parallel cases and who shared my puzzlement at the exact resemblance sometimes discovered. They did not call the condition true insanity, but classed it rather among neurotic disorders. My course in trying to track down and analyze it, instead of vainly seeking to dismiss or forget it, they heartily endorsed as correct according to the best psychological principles. I especially valued the advice of such physicians as had studied me during my position by the other personality. My first disturbances were not visual at all, but concerned the more abstract matters which I have mentioned. There was, too, a feeling of profound and inexplicable horror concerning myself. I developed a queer fear of seeing my own form, as if my eyes would find it something utterly alien and inconceivably abhorrent. When I did glance down and behold the familiar human shape in quiet gray or blue clothing, I always felt a curious relief though in order to gain this relief I had to conquer an infinite dread. I shunned mirrors as much as possible and was always shaved at the barber's. It was a long time before I correlated any of these disappointed feelings with the fleeting visual impressions which began to develop. The first such correlation had to do with the odd sensation of an external artificial restraint on my memory. 
I felt that the snatches of sight I experienced had a profound and terrible meaning and a frightful connection with myself, but that some purposeful influence held me from grasping that meaning and that connection. Then came that queerness about the element of time, and with it desperate efforts to place the fragmentary dream glimpses in the chronological and spatial pattern. The glimpses themselves were at first merely strange rather than horrible. I would seem to be in an enormous vaulted chamber whose lofty stone arroinings were well nigh lost in the shadows overhead. In whatever time or place the scene might be, the principle of the arch was known as fully and used extensively as by the Romans. There were colossal round windows and high arched doors and pedestals or tables, each as tall as the height of an ordinary room. Vast shelves of dark wood lined the walls, holding what seemed to be volumes of immense size with strange hieroglyphics on their backs. The exposed stonework held curious carvings, always in curvilinear mathematical designs, and there were chiseled inscriptions in the same characters that the huge books bore. The dark granite masonry was of a monstrous megathic type, with lines of convex-topped blocks fitting the concave-bottomed courses which rested upon them. There were no chairs, but the tops of the vast pedestals were littered with books, papers, and what seemed to be writing materials, oddly figured jars of a purplish metal, and rods with stained tips. Tall as the pedestals were, I seemed at times able to view them from above. On some of them were great globes of luminous crystal serving as lamps, and inexplicable machines formed of vitreous tubes and metal rods. The windows were glazed and latticed with stout-looking bars, though I dared not approach and peer out them. I could see from where I was the waving tops of singular fern-like groves. The floor was of massive octagonal flagstones, while rugs and hangings were entirely lacking. Later I had visions of sweeping through cyclopean corridors of stone and up and down gigantic inclined planes of the same monstrous masonry. There were no stairs anywhere, nor was any passageway less than thirty feet wide. Some of the structures through which I floated must have towered in the sky for thousands of feet. There were multiple levels of black vaults below and never open trap doors, sealed down with metal bands and holding dim suggestions of some special peril. I seemed to be a prisoner, and horror hung broodingly over everything I saw. I felt that the mocking curvilinear hieroglyphs on the walls would blast my soul with their message, were I not guarded by a merciful ignorance. Later still, my dreams included vistas from the great round windows and from the titanic flat roof with its curious gardens, wide barren areas and high scalloped parapets of stone to which the topmost of the inclined plains led. 
there were almost endless leagues of giant buildings, each in its garden, and ranged along paved roads fully two hundred feet wide. They differed greatly in aspect, but few were less than five hundred feet square or a thousand feet high. Many seemed so limitless that they must have had a frontage of several thousand feet, while some shot up to monstrous altitudes in the gray, steamy heavens. They seemed to be mainly of stone or concrete, and most of them embodied the oddly curvilinear type of masonry noticeable in the buildings that held me. Roofs were flat and garden-covered, and tended to have scalloped parapets. Sometimes there were terraces and higher levels, and wide cleared spaces amidst the gardens. The great roads held hints of motion, but in the earlier visions I could not resolve this impression into details. In certain places I beheld enormous dark cylindrical towers which climbed far above any of the other structures. These appeared to be of a totally unique nature, and showed signs of prodigious age and dilapidation. They were built of a bizarre type of square-cut basalt masonry, and tapered oddly toward their rounded tops. Nowhere in any of them could the least traces of windows or other apertures, save huge doors, be found. I noticed also some lower buildings, all crumbling with the weathering of eons, which resembled these dark cylindrical towers in basic architecture. Around all these aberrant piles of square-cut masonry there hovered an inexplicable aura of menace and concentrated fear, like that bred by the sealed trap-doors. The omnipresent gardens were almost terrifying in their strangeness, with bizarre and unfamiliar forms of vegetation nodding over broad paths lined with curiously carven monoliths. Abnormally vast fern-like growths predominated, some green and some of a ghastly fungoid pallor. Among them rose great spectral things resembling calamites, whose bamboo-like trunks towered in fabulous heights. Then there were tufted forms like fabulous cycads and grotesque dark green shrubs and trees of coniferous aspect. Flowers were small, colorless, and unrecognizable, blooming in geometrical beds and at large among the greenery. In a few of the terrace and rooftop gardens were more and larger blossoms of most offensive contours and seeming to suggest artificial breeding. Fungi of inconceivable size, outlines, and colors speckled the scene in patterns bespeaking some unknown but well-established horticultural tradition. In the larger gardens on the ground there seemed to be some attempt to preserve the irregularities of nature, but on the roofs there was more selectiveness and more evidence of the topiary art. The skies were almost always moist and cloudy, and sometimes I would seem to witness tremendous rains. Once in a while, though, there would be glimpses of the sun, which looked abnormally large, 
and of the moon whose markings held a touch of difference from the normal that I could never quite fathom, when, very rarely, the night sky was clear to any extent, I beheld constellations which were nearly beyond recognition. Known outlines were sometimes approximated, but seldom duplicated, and from the position of the few groups I could recognize, I felt I must be in the Earth's southern hemisphere, near the Tropic of Capricorn. The far horizon was always steamy and indistinct, but I could see that great jungles of unknown tree ferns, Calamites, Lepidendra, and Sigillaria lay outside the city, their fantastic frondage waving mockingly in the shifting vapors. Now and then there would be suggestions of motion in the sky, but these my early visions never resolved. By the autumn of 1914 I began to have infrequent dreams of strange floatings over the city and through the regions around it. I saw interminable roads through forests of fearsome growths with mottled, fluted, and banded trunks, and past other cities as strange as the one which persistently haunted me. I saw monstrous constructions of black or iridescent tone in glades and clearings where perpetual twilight reigned, and traversed long causeways over swamps so dark I could tell but little of their moist, towering vegetation. Once I saw an area of countless miles strewn with age-blasted basaltic ruins whose architecture had been like that of the few windowless round-topped towers in the haunting city. And once I saw the sea, a boundless, steamy expanse beyond the colossal stone piers of an enormous town of domes and arches. Great, shapeless suggestions of shadow moved over it, and here and there its surface was vexed with anomalous spoutings. <laughs>